Welcome to a bonus episode of Buzz British Book Club. I'm Bridge. And I'm Kit. And today we're going to get buzzed and talk about books. Buckle up, mates. Today's buzz juice is Apothic Cab. It's a Cabernet Sauvignon. And we are drinking it with... uh, It's warm. And we had quite a lot of cheese... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with it before this episode <laughs> and it was pretty delicious it was it was really a, a wonderful pairing yeah I I was lucky enough to have a client send me some you know for my real time real adult job um they <laughs> your sent adult job <laughs> my real real person job and uh they were doing like a virtual wine tasting so they sent us wine and charcuterie um like contents meaning like some type of really fancy sausage and three varieties of cheese and I got them today and I was leaving work and I was like Kit what do you reckon do you want to have some snacks before we start and we didn't really fancy the sauces at all. It looked kind of gross. I, um, so it was kind of like wiggly in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Take that for whatever you, however you interpret that. Uh, so I think uh, Petey got more of the sausage than we did because neither <laughs> one of was, us liked it. It was really heavy with fennel. And and like I said, it's quite it was, chewy. It was very chewy, but it didn't have that savoriness to it. No, like it sausage. felt like the texture was more like beef jerky. Or and something. I gotta say, it looked really <laughs> phallic. <laughs> very phallic. It was it was interesting looking, but I tasted it. I'm actually a vegetarian, but I decided to take it a bit of a veggie vacation just to try it, since it is expensive sausage. And yeah, it just um, so we we the cheese was we really sort of good. left that off, and then the cheese was a true superstar. I wish I could tell you the different types of cheese. It was quite fancy. Um, so we had three varieties of cheese, and then we started drinking wine. Two hours later, we're like, shit, we should record this <laughs> episode. We should get going. <laughs> so uh, as of today, we just launched our first episode on monday so right five days ago but like all the episodes we had pre-recorded before launch right yeah yeah so we just launched the twilight episode on monday have gotten some nice feedback we're pleased with the results so far yeah and we thought it'd be nice to do a bonus episode we just wanted to drop a little extra content and hopefully you like it we're kind of experimenting with what people like give us feedback if you like the bonus episode um, we're quite tipsy already at the moment. <laughs> I'm so. feeling really good. The buzz on this one is amazing. <laughs> so that that's why we're being very relaxed and uh, not so much stuck on our format that we've been doing. Right, yeah. So, uh, well, let's jump into the story. So um, today we are reading a story called Patient Zero. Yes. And I'm pretty sure I, I'm going to butcher her name. Tanana Reeve Du is the author. Okay. Thank you, <laughs> Rich. We're so drunk we can't even find the right tab in our Google Sheet. <laughs> is it? Story thought. There it is. Okay. Um, and you have, uh, you have interesting information about the author. Right, so um, her mother, whose name was Patricia Dew, 
lived in Tallahassee, Florida, which incidentally is where I spent the majority of my youth. Um, and my I'm sorry. <laughs> it was good <laughs> in some ways, bad in others. Uh, maybe we should we could do a whole another bonus episode about Tallahassee. But anyways, um, and she was really like um, a prominent figure in the civil rights movement in Tallahassee, which I don't think most people know about civil rights movement taking place in Tallahassee, or certainly in other areas. And Honestly, I haven't heard of any civil rights happening in Florida. So right. that's interesting. You know, they, they did quite a lot. They risked their lives. They were very brave. Um, Patricia and her sister in particular, I think they were tear gassed and for God. the rest of her life, I think she was wearing sunglasses because her eyes were damaged by that. Oh, my God. So very brave people, um, incredibly important. Somehow or another, I think my father discovered her because he's a bit of a historian and just likes to research things like that and discovered this book that Patricia had written together with her daughter, Tanana Reeve Do, uh, about being involved in the civil rights movement and it hadn't really done that well and my father just thought it was an amazing story incredibly moving for him and so he reached out to her connected with her and just ended up buying a bunch of her books at just out of his own pocket because he thought thought it was important for him he's just like history is important i want people to know and so he bought like 50 or so of her books and had them distributed to all the schools in three counties in the Tallahassee area. So elementary school, middle school, high school. So that they had at least two copies of these books. Nice. And he worked with the African American Museum, which I think is called the Riley Museum in Tallahassee or thereabouts, to have um, Patricia and Tanana Reeve, I believe, do like a book signing and a speech there it's very cool because um Tanana Reeve has become very successful as a writer and she lives out in Hollywood I reckon or in California and has written quite a few books that have been very well received and awarded and aside from this non-fiction that she wrote in tandem with her mother based on their real life experience she wrote a series I think called the living blood series or that's one of the books in the series again about vampires so it Very fits cool. in well with sort of our theme for October yeah. which is more or less vampires and um from the perspective of a person of a of color rather than Edward being a white <laughs> man vampire <laughs> And I know she's just a very well-respected author, Tanana Reeve Do, and I I love the idea of reading something of hers. I know I've heard more of her stuff on LeVar Burton Reed's podcast. Oh, cool. So she's just a very highly regarded author, especially as a person of colour, but just in general, because similar to um, Jewel Gomez and I suppose like Octavia Butler and things like that, where... You know, it's a person of color writing in the fantasy or sci-fi arena, mm-hmm. which, you know, until somewhat recently was unusual. And so I love that element. And while the story we're talking about today doesn't have anything to do with vampires, 
it's still written by an author that has dabbled in that space and yeah. has somewhat of a connection to some of the other stories we're talking about. That's really cool. I like that. So, yeah, so this story is, is a sci-fi story probably was the intent when it was written, but now it's 2022 <laughs> and COVID has happened and so the story like hits closer to the mark than I most think, people wanted to I think yeah I think it was originally published in 2010 or thereabouts because we read it on Lightspeed magazine but they did have a note that it had been originally published elsewhere so thereabouts which obviously was at least a decade before Adam, yeah, pandemics became a real thing, right? Before it started to feel like post-apocalyptic world that we were living in. So um, it's kind of an interesting perspective on something that we're sort of exploring. The I, I guess I can say, quote unquote, post-COVID world, right? Yeah. So this story is about a young boy or girl. I don't know if it ever says it's a boy. Um, that he's writing in his diary and he's considered patient zero for virus J. Mm -hmm. And he's just in this little bubble, basically. They're mm -hmm. doing all kinds of experiments on him, trying to figure out how to combat the virus. Taking lots of blood, so maybe lots it does blood. fit in with vampires. <laughs> well, blood and possibly organs he had been operated oh, right. on too. And throughout, there, there's allusions that the electricity grid is suffering because yes. the power is coming on and off and you kind of get this sense as you're reading through that the world is combusting on itself um for whatever reason maybe maybe there's a war maybe people are just dying by drugs mm -hmm. um we don't really know because all we have is the perspective of this character this young patient in this bubble and all he knows is his teacher and Dr. Ben, mm -hmm. um, and this horrible French doctor. doctor. And I think Lou is the janitor. Janitor, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and he, then there was another woman who Veronica, was like a nurse or something. The nurse. Yeah. And I think there was another one that started, Renee. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically all his medical staff and caregivers. Right. That's all he knows. And they, they, they kind of disappear one by one. Until just his teacher is left, Mrs. Manigat. Manigat. I would. She's from Haiti. I would assume her name is French, and French pronunciation is not my strong suit. So, Manigat. Maybe. I mean, that sounds I lovely. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, Miss M, who is um, quite an, a remarkable character for me, because. Over the course of the short story, you learn she's there as a volunteer mm -hmm. because she saw Jay, the patient zero character, on television and thought, like, she felt a connection to him and probably understood. I think she was an educator previously and, and thought, like, he deserved someone continu mm -hmm. continuing his education and caring for him beyond just his physical and medical needs like right, his, yeah. his cognitive and growth and development needs and she is um described as his best friend yeah which is quite sweet i think so too yeah he, he lost his entire family and apparently everyone's losing their family and it's just 
really kind of horrific to even think about. It's it's cool because I mean cool is the wrong word. I think it's structured very well and keeps your interest very well because you start in such a limited way of understanding what's going on. You yeah. really don't. It's just, just this little boy and he's getting a signed photograph from Dan Marino, the yeah. quarterback of the Miami Dolphins, which this is based in Miami, um, which he starts to doubt later later on. Yeah. He says it looks like Uncle, uh, Uncle Ben. It looks like Dr. Ben's handwriting. Yeah. So you kind of see him growing up a little bit, that maturity level. He starts to peel back what his childlike perception of the world is mm. and he starts to think maybe dr ben just signed this for me and perhaps dan marino didn't but all that to say i completely forgot where i was going with that <laughs> <laughs> it's the wine <laughs> it's the wine um yeah so anyways uh i i like the narrative device because it seems relatively light-hearted in the beginning but there are these elements of the sinister where he's getting this signed autograph by Dan Marino and talking about pictures on his wall, which sounds like a very normal yeah. boy thing to do. Like I've got maps of the world and I've got Dan Marino's picture on my wall. But then there's a glass wall or window between mm. Jay and the rest of the world. Right. And there's an intercom. So obviously he's in some type of secluded setting and you're not really sure why in the beginning. Yeah. And you start to think, is he like in a mental institution? That was my first thought. Um, or is he in some type of juvenile detention situation? And then you know, patient zero being the title sort of leads you down right. the path a little bit, but but then you understand you start to understand like he is a carrier for this disease and he's the only one that's been able to survive it and it's decimated potentially the rest of the country, the rest of the world nearly. Yeah, and as it kind of becomes apparent, like they're not able to really find a cure. No matter how much blood they take from him or organs or experiments or whatever, they still don't find a cure and um that's kind of scary to think about um there's a lot of animosity recorded in his journal about like like the janitor at one point says horrible things to him like they should have put you down like a dog or like you know all these kinds of things and like blaming him for what's happening and it's really interesting to me how this story kind of foreshadows misinformation about yeah. things it was crazy so he records in his diary that his father was on an oil rig working and his father got sick and some of the other workers got sick as well and you know the father brought it home and, and infected the whole family basically including this little boy and so he he says in his journal that i'm not patient zero but that's what everyone on tv said they said that it originated with me but that's not true and i thought and so he got the brunt of the anger um and the grief about it just the misinformation about you know how the media like just dismissed the other people that were infected and just dis arbitrarily assigned blame to him. Yeah, it's really mean, interesting to me. I think 
we all can recognize that people like a scapegoat, but I didn't yeah. understand why it would be easier to blame a little boy over a grown man. But maybe that's just because his father had already died by the time they started tracking this as a as a pandemic. I, I don't know. You really don't get those insights into it. You it's... know, in my head, and perhaps it's because I'm really pessimistic about a lot of things, I'm almost wondering if maybe it was kind of inferring that, um, you know, money-making machines or, like, corporate whatever are going to try and cover their tracks as much as possible to stay in business. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. Like, you know, Let's throw it on this little boy instead of the oil oil workers. Yeah. And they don't want to be the source of this. Accept responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably true. I think you're... You know... Just as an example. As an example, it could have been anyone... You know, but, you know, she specifically picked this and then made a point that the media deflected onto this little boy. Someone who doesn't really have a say-so or can defend themselves. No, because they're underage. his entire family. And he lost his entire family. So, yeah, it's really sad and really messed up, but, you know, it kind of foreshadows a lot of things. And that's, you know, for 2010, Yeah, that's really sobering i think yeah i think so and i like from a writing style perspective how the tension grows throughout the story because you know she sets the stage in the beginning where you start to understand what's going on and then as you mentioned people are dropping forgive the expression but like flies uh, yeah, the world is just disappearing. Because one of them was exposed to his blood and mm-hmm. got um, got sick and died. And similar thing happens to the rest of the support staff until the very end where Mrs. Miss Maginat... Manigot. Manigot. Manigot, thank you. Manigot. Um, his teacher <laughs> is is very heroic in how she stays. She talks about coming in or he talks about how she brings in like plants from her garden mm-hmm. um, and tries to teach him because she probably sees the writing on the wall like the the uh, world we know it is is disappearing it's disintegrating and there might be a world in the very near future where Jay this little boy is the only one that's left perhaps and he needs to be able to fend for himself and with every element of the in- infrastructure down he needs to know what plants he can eat and what he can right. use them for and how to prepare them. So she brings in plants from her garden and talks to him about it, about what's edible, what's poisonous, etc. And then she talks about how much she loves her garden and she doesn't want to move into the facility where he's held. But over time, she eventually moves in to care for him. And then at the very end, she's talking about how tired she is. Mm which at that point indicated to me she's been infected. Oh. And she couldn't even get out of bed. She forgot to feed him one day because she's literally the only one left. So I kind of read that because she mentioned that that was all she could find. So she 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 didn't feed him one day, but she brought him cold oatmeal the next right. day. 
And that was all the food she could find. I think she literally couldn't get out of bed because she was sick. And then she brings him cold oatmeal because she just, like, didn't want him to go hungry. And then I believe it was shortly after that she stopped coming. Right. Yeah, so she gives him the, the code to get out of his room because, like, he's in this quarantine box and you have to have a code to get in and out. And so she gives him the code because I think she knows, like you said, maybe she has been infected mm -hmm. and she knows that he's just going to die in this box if she doesn't give him this code. So she gives him the code and tells him that... Um, he might have to go outside. Yeah. I mean... I don't want to sound premature, but the story kind of ends there. He 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 kind of writes in his journal that he he went out and he looked in the shelves and the cabinets and he couldn't well, find Well, he any went food. out in out of his room. Right. Into the After other... like two days. He yeah. was super dedicated was... to waiting. Well, he was, you know, he's 12 years old or 10 years old or something. So he's incredibly hungry. Yeah. And is not like an adult that has that perspective like, I can manage my hunger, right. I need to wait. So for being his age, he held out for a really long time. Eventually, he's like, I have to go out. I need to eat. And if I see anyone, I'll stay far away from them. Right. And so he goes out into the kitchen of this, you know, hospital or facility or whatever, can't find anything. And then he realizes that he has to go out into the world Otherwise, he's going to die. Like, he has to leave the facility mm -hmm. to go find food. And I liked, in a way, how it ended because it was like he was leaving a note and he was like, okay, guys, like, I had to go out. I didn't have a choice. Right. And I'm going to do this and then I'm going to come right back and I'm going to be very safe. Right. And that's the end of it, which that, is yeah. just, just like... It's kind such of a, a gut, gut punch. punch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like shit. And then in my mind, I'm thinking now we've got such a, um, I guess, um, a threshold or um, collective understanding of post-apocalyptic world just because, you know, since The Walking Dead and all these other like major touch points in our culture that have focused on post-apocalyptic world, like it's very normal for us to think about it. And unfortunately, now post-COVID, it's extremely normal for us to think about it. So I don't think this had as much of a shock factor for me because it's like, okay, we've read this right. story before. Yeah, we've lived this yeah. sort of almost. And I kind of was like, well, this is this is like the the preface for a TV show. Yeah. And then the TV show is like him going out into the world, mm. right? Like it's just the beginning. And he was patient zero, allegedly. And now he's out surviving or trying to survive. And this is when The Walking Dead kicks off or something, you know? <laughs> That's funny. I didn't think about it like that. But yeah, maybe so. Um, yeah, you know, something else I thought was interesting um, was that Miss Manigot mentions that there's three little girls. In China. In China who were also immune. Um, Which... Given, and I don't want to get too political. But, I know, isn't that weird? But just how it's like, feels so similar to COVID. Right. Because for many different reasons, China was highlighted as a potential source of COVID. Right. And it's weird to me because as I was reading it, I didn't know this was published in 2010. And so as I was reading it, I was like, wait a minute, this is kind of in poor taste. Yeah. But then like, 
after I found out it was written in 2010, I was like, what? It's like, prophetic it's, almost. I know, it's really scary. But I thought it was interesting that Miss Manigot, she, he asked her um, if the other three little girls were subject to experiments or something like that. If yeah. they, because, you know, they they were... They may have been carriers, may not have been carriers, but they recovered from the virus like he had. And um, he had mentioned something to Miss Manigot, like, you know, like, what what happened to them? Like, are they okay? Or, like, what's their life like? Or something like that. And she kind of, like, diverted the question a little bit and was like, yeah, well, maybe they would have been okay or something like that. Kind of like alluding to the fact that like China was no longer didn't exist anymore, and that I was think, interesting. I think that's what I liked about the narrative device was how well Tananri do captured the innocence and limited perspective of this boy, yeah. but still was able to convey a lot of information how the world was falling apart, yeah, and how the adults that were speaking to Jay censored themselves to um, make it more, I guess, uh, acceptable for him. Because obviously if you tell a little child straight up, like the world is ending, that's that's too much for them to take. So I thought there were so many layers to it, even though it was, you know, a short story, it was got so many layers to it in terms of how she framed it up. And as you read it, you have multiple understandings of like, this is Jay's perspective. This yeah. is the adult's perspective. And this is what's perhaps really going on in the world. Yeah. It did remind me of two things. It reminded me of um, I Am Legend. Did you ever watch that movie? A long time ago. All I remember is the dog. Oh, God. Don't, don't talk. I'll cry. <laughs> I'll cry. Um, yeah, like the isolation and being alone in this whole city um and trying to survive like that that's what it reminded me of and then you know you were talking about potentially organs being taken which we don't know if that's really true but it was potentially like something that happened because jay mentioned he'd been subjected to multiple um operations mm -hmm. and he had pains in his abdomen that he thought meant they had taken something out so it made me think of Never Let Me Go. Have you ever read that or no, seen that? No, uh-uh. I think it won the Pulitzer Prize or something. I was just trying to look it up. Um, shortlisted for the Booker Prize um, and a lot of other awards. So maybe not Pulitzer. But anyway, it's written by Kazuo Ishiguro, which I've seen that name quite a lot, but I obviously don't know how to pronounce it. But it's in this dystopian world where everyone has a clone and your clones are used as like an organ farming whatever oh. and the clones supply you with another like organ to transplant so you can live longer and they slowly die off as their vital organs are taken away well wow, that's messed up <laughs> yeah so that's what <laughs> you should you should you should read that or watch that movie because it's really good but obviously heartbreaking yeah so that it gave me those vibes so the ending of the book kind of you know alludes to the fact that jay the the, the main character the boy 
leaves and he, he says in his journal that this is for Miss Manigat if she returns because he doesn't know where she lives. He doesn't know where to look for her. So he leaves this journal behind to go and search for food. And then like that's the end of it. And so we're kind of left with this feeling like, okay, well, he never came back and made another entry. So maybe he died. But like, there's like endless possibilities endless as to what might have happened. And so like, I guess I don't know, I was just like, like, what? What do you think happened? Or like, what well, could have happened? I guess one thing that we didn't explicitly mention is the time frame of this. So we mentioned Dan Marino, which, you know, if you guys don't know anything about American football, um, he was quite prominent in about the 90s. Yeah. And I believe he had his entire career, more or less, at the Miami Dolphins. Very well respected. I think he was in the Hall of Fame as a quarterback. Um, so that's what kicks off this story is Jay getting a quote-unquote signed photo of Dan Marino, the right. best quarterback in the world. And so that kind of situates us in the 1990s. And there's some mentions of um, uh, technology that seem to align with the 90s. So it changes quite a few things because myself in the 90s, I wasn't so spoiled by <laughs> GPS and Google and having oh my God. a smartphone in my hand. I used to have to deliver pizzas with a map. Like an actual physical paper Did you map. really? I did. Yeah, I was a Domino's delivery driver for about a year. Wow. Yeah, while well, I was in college and I and I actually used a map to find the address. I had to memorise it before I left the store because I didn't have GPS on my phone. Wow, what a time to be alive. <laughs> I, I use my Google Maps to navigate home. Even when I obviously know how to get home, <laughs> but I just use it because it's kind of like reassuring one and two, you're forewarned about, you know, accidents. And right. Yeah. So you're taking the fastest way home, allegedly. And I was thinking about that the other day because I was like, do you, know, do you know, like every one of these technological devices that we use now is designed to eliminate any uncertainty in our life? Yeah. And it's interesting. I kind of think that takes something out of it, which maybe that's the pen. The harsh lesson that we learned with COVID was like, you can't live yourself. You can't live your life that way because no matter what you think you've got everything like taken care of or your plan for everything or whatever the best laid plans and then fate or divine providence or science or whatever it is comes in and literally like crushes all of our plans for the future and how we spent our days yeah. and, and forced us to reset in a way about how busy we were and we were like we need to go sit down somewhere we literally couldn't go anywhere so we were forced to do that right you know? yeah so i think like <laughs> if it were me at that age i would not do well um, running around outside trying to forage and survive but I think perhaps now I think I might do okay I don't know it'd be tough but I think I'd have like a better mindset about how to at least start yeah like foraging for supplies and stuff yeah that would be that would be hard because like um 
you know, where I live in Georgia, and, and I know in Florida too, I know that peaches are a big thing, oranges are a big thing. Yeah. Palm wine. trees, <laughs> wine. <laughs> like, I feel like in Florida, like, he might be able to find food sources, mm -hmm. maybe in people's yards, maybe, you know, along beaches or whatever. Um, At least he wouldn't have such a hard time as, like, other states in the winter where it would be really difficult to survive. Right, as far as, like, being really cold yeah. or something like that. That's true. Um, it's interesting that you bring Don't, that up. Other crazy people live in Florida. I know, right? <laughs> I say that as a person that lived in Florida for like right. 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like there would be a lot of gators and a lot of scary things too, you know. In and Miami, maybe some. But yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, there's no electricity or anything like that either. So like what water sources are safe to drink and, and things like that. I mean, like, you'd have to build fires to boil the water and clearly there's lots of things that could go wrong for a 12 year old boy right. i guess that's my point oh, and, yeah. and um i don't know like yeah i don't know what i do i think as a 12 year old i think i would definitely just be dead you know no, I, I, I would yeah. make it the reality long. of it is we would probably die but <laughs> uh trying without, to bring without a microwave to cook the oatmeal <laughs> Honestly, with without like yeah, I don't without know, electricity, we hot done. pockets and pop tarts. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how a twelve-year-old would survive, but um, I do think like if I want to be a little bit more positive, because this is turning quite depressing. I know uh, it's like to think he searches and he finds another colony of people that are like him, and they rebuild a community together. And when I say like him, I mean they are immune to the disease as well. I'm sure there probably are some, but at the same time... That's what only... gets into Walking Dead was like, I there's going to be a gang of people that are going to murder you. But like the other three people that were known globally were halfway across the world. They could just be hidden, you know? Like, in Miami. Yeah. There's a lot of people <laughs> in Miami. If they all died Maybe. and then just like people started holding up in like, I don't know, one of those like basketball player mansions out there. Maybe you, so. You might not know it. I don't know. I think there's a lot to be, um, there's a lot of spin-off potential for the story. Yeah. Definitely. It's interesting that you brought up like now we're in The Walking Dead or whatever. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Um, yeah. So like, do you want to get to our court rating? Shit, yeah, I didn't do I didn't either. <laughs> it this was gonna be an on the fly court grading. We we had sort of a last minute change in our plans for what we were gonna record today, so that's why we're a little bit disorganized. But um I think for me I'd say it's a three. Um readable, it was very readable. I thought the tension was well delivered. The plot was cohesive. I didn't see a ton of character development, perhaps outside of like as Jay is starting to mature and understand the realities of his world beyond just like playing a bit in his very private playroom, um, which sounded weird, but that's how they described <laughs> his playroom because there was like a rope yeah. coming out of the ceiling that he talked about climbing and it just seemed like he had sort of a... a jungle gym sort of situation um 
so the, I guess point mm, five there, and I'm not sure about significant military culture, good or bad. I mean, I I think overall, like hers, the authors is good. Um, so yeah, I don't know. This feels weird because I don't want to rate it higher than. Um, <laughs> Shirley Jackson's The Lottery because I think The Lottery had more of an impact on the world and like we're still talking about it 60 years 70 years later whatever um, so I don't know how to do fuzzy math but let's just say three and a half I like the story um, I, I think part of what's working against it is like for us the pandemic is very yeah. normal Whereas, you know, if we had read it when it first came out, maybe it would be have a bit more punch, if that makes sense. Maybe, but I kind of disagree with that. I think that it has more punch now, at least for you me. think so? Yeah, for me, I think it does because it's so, it's something I can identify with a bit more. So I think for me, it has more punch. Okay. Um, I mean, so for readability, there wasn't anything I didn't understand. I thought it was very readable. All the words were normal words there wasn't anything i had to look up or anything like that tension and interest keeping i'm gonna give that half a cork because yeah. towards the middle it just kind of seemed to go on yeah um a bit too long and i thought it needed to move on i thought the plot cohesiveness and the arc was solid you know like we've already talked about i thought i thought it developed well and and released clues mm -hmm. appropriately mm -hmm. um to lead to the final conclusion and i thought the character development and the arc was good as well um, you know, he, he's learning things and learning about, you know, himself and he's starting to understand that maybe things are not as cosy as he thought yeah. they were, especially when he starts to realise that Doc's safe. Or safe, yeah. yeah. And I think his significance to literary culture, I thought I thought it was good as well. Okay. I think both for nineteen ninety, well, whenever it was published, two thousand and ten. I, 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 I almost wanna go research like how many post-apocalyptic disease type films and series have been inspired by this? Um, inspired by Patient Zero. By Patient Zero. I wonder if there are any. But also I think that it's really interesting that um, you know, a person of colour writing in the sci-fi genre, you know, you just don't, it's not, there's not a lot of attention drawn Something to that. And that's an interesting point you mentioned because I don't know if I ever got a true sense of like what Jay's race was. I didn't and I think that's good. Like maybe it's because I'm a white person and I read it through that lens that I just defaulted to white which is not a good thing but that's just you know that's my mindset I suppose. But it's it's interesting to think of it as like potentially he's not white because that could put some of the scapegoat elements in a completely and really nefarious perspective. Mm -hmm. It's like she wrote it in such a way that it could literally be anyone. Yeah, I mean, I Patient think Patient Zero can be anyone. Um, so the significance of literary culture, I thought, was spot on. Four and a half corks. Four and a half corks for you. Okay. Yeah. Well, now that I'm, again, thoroughly depressed about everything. <laughs> I need some more cheese. I think we need more cheese. Which, <laughs> thankfully, we still have some left. But then 
uh, Kit and I need to go get some kombucha to help us <laughs> digest said <laughs> cheese. Perhaps, perhaps Petey too. He's <laughs> passed out behind us on the bed, snoring a wee bit. Yeah. Ooh, that was quite a loud snore. Is he growling in his sleep? I think so. Yeah, he might be chasing a rabbit or something. <laughs> oh, Petey's so pure. <laughs> okay, so three and a half corks for me, four and a half from Kit. What about the wine? For yeah, um, the wine. I liked it when we started, but I liked it even more as we went. I agree. Especially with the cheese. Oh, my God. Especially with the mouldy cheese. Uh, you love the stinky mouldy cheese. Like, something about the rind. Like, I never used to eat the rind on cheese. I thought we were supposed to cut it off. But I ate it in the rinds with the wine and it was like really good i don't know it was amazing do you ever see bridget jones diary no <laughs> well you should watch it but there's this part where she's like very depressed she she's eating everything in her apartment because she's depressed but she doesn't want to go out so she has that moment which i think a lot of people can relate to where you don't want to go out but you're hungry and so you look in your fridge and as you get hungrier, the contents of the fridge start to become more appetizing. <laughs> uh, and at some point, she, she just guzzle a bottle of rum. <laughs> she has this wedge of cheese that looks gross and has some growth on it. Oh. And she literally just like just shaves it off and eats it anyway. <laughs> So, uh, after we used to do that when I was a child, oh, <laughs> <laughs> this cheese is okay, just cut the bad parts off. I would do that with bread growing up, yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Even though too. since then, I've read that once mold appears on the bread, the whole loaf is infected, yeah, you can't see it, yeah. But I would just cut it off, and I mean, I've lived to tell the tale, same so, here, yeah. Which incidentally reminds me of the chat we were having before we started recording of like who discovered the first cheese <laughs> and Kit thought it was someone who was really hungry. <laughs> like some some goat milk was left out and it curdled and did something and then they looked at it and they were like, hmm, I'm really hungry. I wonder if I could just eat this. And they lived maybe to tell the tale. Maybe the goat was eaten by a wolf or something in the middle of the night. Maybe. So they had to eat the leftover milk from the day before. I suppose. <laughs> we did start Googling it and it got really weird. Like, yeah. who was the first person to milk a live animal? A goat. But, I don't know. Anyway. It was a fun conversation. <laughs> it was funny because Bridge asked, like, I wonder if that's how... <laughs> I wonder if that's how wine was created too. And anyway, somebody really lazy and really hungry, really thirsty, came up me. with yeah, came up with cheese and came up with wine. <laughs> and I am forever in their debt. Agreed. Half the world is or more. Honestly, yeah. All right. So <laughs> as back to the cork rate oh shit i didn't even get that far it was very smooth um good taste good buzz i think it was 20 dollars or so this bottle damn um so is that a zero for cost i'm maybe half for me. okay and then i drink it again so what does that give me four and a half four and a half corks right. yeah yeah i i agree yeah, so I think I'm I'm similar there. Um, except I, I think I'm gonna do a four corker because it was very smooth, 
The taste was really good. It was excellent buzz, obviously. Um, the cost, though, I'm definitely Zero. not paying $20 for a bottle of wine. But I would drink it again if someone else wanted to pay that cost. <laughs> <laughs> if someone else wants to pay the $20, I'll definitely drink it I'm again. I'm curious to know, like, people that drink wine regularly, what is your benchmark for expense on one bottle of wine because as we've talked about in our episodes that we've recorded and some of them we've released but some of them we haven't my my threshold is usually like 11 to 13 dollars just like an everyday sort of not every day but you know a <laughs> weekly or so like it's expensive habits <laughs> right <laughs> i need some help no i'm just kidding um it's it's a uh, uh, you know, a weekly or so expenses, just like, okay, that's fine. That's normal. Right, yeah, yeah. And then for you, we've talk about, talked about Winking Owl and Audi, and so your benchmark or threshold is like $4. Five. Top five. <laughs> but you're so thrilled that Winking Owl has gone down in price. Recently. Oh, my God, yes. three forty-five a bottle <laughs> now. It was three. So it was like. I think it was a dollar ninety-five about three or four months ago, and then you know, with everything going up, um, it went to like three ninety-five, and now it's three forty-five. So well, there you go. Happy it came down fifty cents. So I want to hear what was reasonable for our listeners. Like, what do you normally spend when you're buying your average, just nice to have some at home wine? And incidentally. We were talking about my client who sent us some sense. My team at my civilian job, whatever we want to call it. Your adult job. My adult real person job. Um, some cheese. He also sent us some wine and I snagged one of those bottles. And um, it's like a $50 bottle of some type of red blend. And so I immediately texted Kit and I was like, Hey, I got this. Like, we should save it for a special occasion. So it's definitely sitting at home. Um, I, I don't know what we've decided we're going to use it for, but um, we're quite, I'm excited. It's going to be an occasion. Too. Yeah, dollar bottle of wine is quite nice. Yeah, definitely. Like maybe like 100 downloads or 200 downloads or something. How many downloads are we at now? 48, 58. So maybe we should set it at 50. <laughs> And this Maybe. is day four of our official launch. You hear it? Maybe let's save it for next month or something. Yeah, I think, um, I think, yeah, we'll figure it out. We'll let you know for sure. Yeah, if you have suggestions for when we should drink it, let me know. Definitely. It's, it's the Buena Vista, the Sheriff which is um, like a red blend Sounds and it's, so fancy. it's got a really cool bottle with like this massive metallic sheriff star on it. So um, we're going to savor that one for sure, rather than chug it like we did the apothic <laughs> cab today. <laughs> it was nice though. Quite All right, everyone. So it's time for a nap now. <laughs> I know, it really is. I'm, I've been yawning over here. Well, until next time. Buzz off, mate. Buzz off.
thank you for joining us for our bonus episode. Next week, we're back to our scheduled programming. Scheduled. Scheduled (laughs) with the Gilda stories. And we'll be drinking the McBride Sisters Black Girl Magic, and it's amazing. You're going to love it. Definitely. Buzz off, mate. Buzz off. Follow us on Twitter at BuzzedBritCast. And you can follow us on Instagram at BuzzedBritBookClub. And email at buzzedbritbookclub at gmail.com.